Thank you for coming out. You braved the not storm. Hey, my uh, broken snowblower is glad that there was no snow today, so let's keep that going. That's wonderful. Uh, my name is Johnny. I'm the campus pastor here at the bridge. I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. I am uh, so glad that you came out to worship with us this morning. If you're here visiting uh, to uh, be part of the baptism, welcome. That was uh, beautiful. It's always such a beautiful thing to see uh, children welcomed into the family of God. And so I, uh, I'm jealous. Bep, Bep likes to snag those for herself. I'm going to start taking some though, Bep. I'm going to. That's a beautiful thing. Uh, when my wife Kayla and I first got married, uh, we had, uh, you know, all the common type gifts that you would expect at a wedding. We had plates and silverware and house goods and sheets and bedding and all that different kind of stuff that you kind of expect to get at a wedding. We actually got two pizza pizzazzes. Do you guys know what a pizza pizzazz is? The, it makes frozen pizza delicious. You didn't know frozen pizza could be good until you had it on a pizzazz. We got two. So there, we were rolling, man, okay? So we got normal kitchen gadgets, plates, cups, you know, this kind of stuff. But there was one gift that was very unexpected. One gift that stands out in my mind, my brother and my sister-in-law for our wedding got us really, really good tickets to a Cubs game that happened to be on my birthday, and it was against the St. Louis Cardinals. If you don't know anything about baseball, you know that the Cardinals are, or, uh, you don't know that the Cardinals are the worst team ever, uh, and the Cubs are the best team ever, and you know, so it was exciting, uh, David and Goliath, really. So uh, I was excited for this. That, that is a wedding gift, okay? If you are thinking about getting somebody a wedding gift, forego the plates, man. Get them tickets to a Cubs game on their birthday, because that was a wedding gift. And really, it only got better, because when we went to the game, uh, it was exciting, it was thrilling, it was high scoring, which is strange for baseball, but it was, it was great. And then it went into extra innings. We got bonus baseball, and of course, the Cubs won. It was perfect. It was better than I could have expected it to be. Even after I got the tickets, I was still surprised at how awesome this thing was. It was better than I think I would have even hoped for. It was a great, great gift. So this week is our last week in the Acts series. This is our last week in our series that we are calling Together. And next week, as Suzanne said, we are moving into Advent. And uh, now here in our 12th week of Acts, we are going to see the early church experiencing something that surprises them. Now, if you've been following along with us or if you know anything about the book of Acts, you know that the early church has already been exposed to the goodness of God. You know that the early church has already been exposed to miracles, to uh, what the author of Acts calls signs and wonders. The early church has been exposed to God moving in ways that were beyond their comprehension. And you would think that after all of that, that maybe they would have lost their ability to be surprised. Maybe it becomes old hat in some way when God moves, when God does something miraculous. Maybe it's something that they are now prepared for and no longer surprised by. They have seen and experienced God do amazing things. And yet, as we see in our passage today, they can still be surprised by what God is capable of doing. So this morning we're in Acts chapter 12, and things are not going well at all for the church in Jerusalem. 
Uh, Jerusalem is the center of the early church. It's where the whole thing got started. It's kind of the, the focal point of the early church. And things have gotten really, really bad for the church in Jerusalem. Uh, the religious leaders were already kind of against the people. And now the religious leaders have kind of connected with the political leadership. And uh, uh, the persecution has really reached a fever pitch. So that's where we're at, Acts chapter 12. And it's going to be on the screen for us this morning. Um, we're going to be in verses 1 through 17. It was about this time, this time being some things that happened in chapter 11, that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around yourself and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel, he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. Peter thought he was just seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened them for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Now Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent this angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. I'm a sleepwalker, so I can relate to Peter here, okay? It would be very surprising to wake up like this, okay? When this dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, different John than the beginning of the passage, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was overjoyed. She was so overjoyed, she ran back without him, without opening it, and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You are out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hands for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So before we really get going here, I want to clarify something. There are three different Herods listed in the New Testament. When Jesus is born, there's this guy, Herod, who is really jealous of Jesus, and he tries to get the wise men to tell him where he can find Jesus. And uh, he does something so terrible that uh, Joseph and Mary and Jesus have to flee to Egypt to get away from him. That's the first Herod. 
Then at the time when uh, Jesus is crucified, there's another Herod, and Jesus has to go stand trial in front of this Herod, and Jesus uh, doesn't even say a word to this Herod. And I think that we can read into that a little bit, that Jesus is so put off, Jesus is so disgusted by this person, Herod, that he won't even talk to him. That's the other Herod. And now we get to the third Herod in this passage, the Herod who kills uh, John and captures Peter and tries to kill Peter. So these are three different Herods, Herod, Herod, and Herod. It's three different dudes. Um, We can assume that if your name is Herod in the Bible, you're a bad guy. No good Herods, okay? We got Herod, Herod, and Herod. Not good dudes, okay? But not the same dude. Three different bad dudes, okay? That's where we're at. Okay, so Herod has joined forces with the religious leaders, and they are after the followers of Jesus. Herod literally kills John. John is one of Jesus's original disciples, one of the original 12 disciples that had followed Jesus around everywhere. And the the original disciples had become the leaders of the church. If you were one of the original uh, disciples, the apostles, you were one of the leaders of the church. And now Herod is not just trying to get to the followers of Jesus, the the people who are uh, converting into this thing, the church. He's going for the head. Herod is coming after the head. This is an attempt not just to slow the growth of the church down. This is an attempt to really kill the early church. Herod is exerting his power in order to do that. This is a dark, dark time for the church. And Herod is so serious about this mission to kill the church that when he catches Peter, he goes way overboard on guarding him. We're told that he sets four squads of four soldiers each. That's 16 people, 16 soldiers who are intended to guard one person. It kind of makes you wonder what Herod has heard about these followers of Jesus. What exactly has Herod heard that he's got 16 people doing this? So Peter gets all chained up and thrown into a cell, surrounded by guards inside of a building with guards at the door, inside of a prison with iron gates, and more guards milling around. This is where Peter is. Peter, this is Fort Knox, and Peter is the gold, okay? Nothing's getting in or out of here. This is it. Like, Peter is stuck in this situation. Nothing's going to get in or out. Except, he does get out. God sends an angel. And this angel shows up and literally walks Peter out of his chains, out of his cell, out of the building, through the gates, and out of the prison. It is so miraculous that Peter doesn't think it's really happening. This is so unbelievable. This is so out of the ordinary. This is so incomprehensible that Peter actually doesn't believe it's happening. It's easier for him to believe that he is having a vision, uh, a dream that is so real that it feels like it's happening. It's easier for him to believe that than to believe that this is really happening. He can't believe it. This gift of God is so unexpected and so unbelievable that Peter doesn't recognize it's happened until he's standing in the middle of the street with the prison behind him, and he's free as a bird. That's incredible. And not only does Peter not believe it, but the rest of the church doesn't believe it either. The, uh, the story is meant to be funny. It's meant to be uh, ironic. It's meant to be humorous, the way that it's written. Because Peter gets out of the prison. He has to go out of the gates, right, to get out of the prison where he is supposed to be kept. And yet he can't get through the gates to get into the church where the people are praying for him because they can't believe that he's there. And the sermon girl is so excited that Peter's outside that she absolutely forgets to let him in. 
She's so worked up, like she can't believe Peter's here. She runs back and she never even lets him in. And the people say, you're crazy. It's easier for them to believe that Peter's guardian angel has showed up than it is for them to believe that Peter is there. It's easier for them to believe that an angel has appeared than that Peter has escaped. They can't believe it. This is incredible. This isn't supposed to happen. This is beyond their expectation, beyond their hope. Finally, Peter gets in, he gives them some instructions, and then he makes his escape from Jerusalem. Peter's out. Peter's not messing around with Jerusalem anymore. He's going to another place. He's getting out of there. Peter and the church are surprised by God. They have seen miracles, but this prison break catches them off guard. They've witnessed God's hand before, but they still can't believe that this really happened. They know and they trust God, but they are shocked when God reveals himself again. They're, they're amazed at what's happened. So if you uh, preach long enough, you start to preach the same passages over, and that's kind of happened. Uh, to me now, in my last church, we did a series in Acts maybe three years ago, and I didn't preach every Sunday back then. Uh, I was like a little uh, doggy trying to get scraps under the table. Um, and so whenever the lead pastor let me have a Sunday, I was maybe a little overeager. Um, but I preached this one. I preached Acts chapter 12. Uh, and so I remembered this week, I remembered that I preached that. And so I went back to look at that sermon. I thought maybe I could just not write a sermon this week. I'll just copy this. No. I thought maybe I can go back and reference this. Maybe there's something good, right, that I could uh, bring forward to this week. And as I looked at that sermon, I saw something in there. I realized something. A few years ago, when I preached this sermon, I felt like this passage, I interpreted this passage as an example of the church lacking faith. When I read this story, what I saw was that the church lacked faith, that they were praying for Peter, but they didn't really believe that he could get free right? I I thought that this was an example of the church not having a true conviction that God was going to come through for them. They lacked faith. I interpreted that shock that they have as a statement about what they believed was possible. If they really had faith, they wouldn't hesitate to celebrate what God had done. And then uh, my daughter Eliza and I've talked about this before, uh, developed um, epilepsy. She's always had epilepsy, but it started to manifest itself. Uh, And my daughter has Down syndrome, and then she has epilepsy on top of that. And uh, a few years ago, I interpreted this as a lack of faith. But then I've spent the last few years praying for healing for my daughter that has not come. I spent the last few years praying earnestly and believing fervently that healing would come to Eliza, and it hasn't in any way that I thought that it would. God never showed up in the way that I wanted him or expected him to do. And that changes the way that you think about faith and hope. When you pray earnestly, when you believe earnestly, and you don't get the reaction from God that you want. You don't get the response from God that you expect. You don't get the payoff, right, that you believe will happen. That changes the way that you think about faith and hope. When you pray with expectancy and feel those prayers are coming up empty, 
when you believe really that God can do anything, but you're living in the reality of a broken world. So I like to talk about how I've seen God do miracles. Uh, I, I like to tell the story of my oldest son, Joseph, who we adopted, and how God did something that only God can do. I like to tell that story. I like to tell about how I got to sit front row for God doing something that blew all of my expectations out of the water. I like those stories. This week, I sat and had lunch with a, a couple, and they told me the story of how he had a heart attack, and he should have died. The doctor said that, that he had like a 2% chance of survival on the best of uh, terms, and all of these things had to have happened, and all of these situations had to be lined up for him to have survived the heart attack that he has. That's a miracle. I love telling that story. Two weeks ago, a deacon in our church had a heart attack and died. He was in his 60s. Where's the miracle? It's broken. There are people in our church who lived in refugee camps who have been resettled here now in the United States. And I think in some ways that feels like a miracle. God has moved. They have gotten into a much better situation. And yet those same people have family overseas who are still in refugee camps, family that they pray for, family that they, that they love, family that they think about and lift up all the time, family that has not been resettled. And even in this passage today that we read, the miraculous escape of Peter happens in the light of what, what happens at the very beginning that you might have missed if, if you blinked. John, one of, one of Jesus' apostles, one of the 12 disciples, one of the leaders of the church, John was killed by Herod. Peter escaped. John was killed. God can and does and will continue to act on our behalf. God will rescue. God has, does, and will continue to rescue. He will move. He will subvert expectations. He will go above and beyond. He will do things that we cannot hope for or imagine. But our hope cannot be measured by God's intervention in our lives. When I see the reaction of the church in Acts 12 today, I no longer think that it's an indication of their lack of faith. Rather, I think it's the fact that their faith and hope in God is not contingent on God acting in a certain way on their behalf. They're not surprised that God acted. They're surprised because they know the world is broken. They're surprised because John died. They're surprised because their hope and faith in God is is on an eternal perspective and it's on this plane and it's toward this direction that says that God can and will and does rescue, but if he doesn't, God is still good. God still loves us. Their faith and hope in God is not contingent on God acting in a certain way on their behalf. They gathered to pray because they had that kind of hope. Not hope that God would deliver a specific outcome, but a hope that God works all things, the good and the bad, the miracles and the brokenness together for good. And you know what? It doesn't always feel good. 
And it doesn't always look good. And in fact, I promise you that if you call me and you're in the middle of the bad, I will not come to you and try to tell you that it is good. But I will sit with you in stubborn hope that God is good even in the middle of the bad. I'll sit with you in the stubborn hope that God is the God of rescue even when it doesn't conform to our ideas of what rescue should look like. Because this is the hard, hard truth. Sometimes God rescues us from brokenness and sometimes God rescues us through brokenness. There's a, there's a detail uh, there's a detail in the beginning of this passage, and if, you, you know, if you're not looking for these things, they can kind of pass you by. But there's a detail that the author of Acts gives, and he tells us that this thing that happens to Peter happens at the time of the festival of unleavened bread, what we call Passover. And that the detail is there, and there's actually linguistic connections in the original Greek that connect what happens to Peter with what happened to Jesus. This, this story is supposed to make us remember and reflect on the passion of Jesus. That Jesus too was arrested. Jesus too was in prison. Jesus too was put on trial. It's supposed to remind us. It's supposed to help us create a pattern in our minds of God's rescuing power. Because just like God rescued Peter, God rescued the whole world through Jesus. But as I thought about that today, And I thought about the fact that we don't always get the rescue we want, but that doesn't mean that God isn't God and that God isn't good. As I thought about that, I thought about what I think is the most famous unanswered, if you want to think about it in that way, prayer in the Bible. Jesus, the night that he is betrayed, the night that he is captured and taken uh, into prison and beat and flogged and then eventually crucified, that night Jesus is praying. It says he goes up to the Mount of Olives and he says, Father, if you are willing to take this cup from me. He's saying, God, I don't want to do this. This is hard. This is a situation that is uh, too much. God, will you please take this cup from me? And he says, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And then it says, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. This is Jesus. The the rescue for us. The reason that we can be here and gather together, the freedom that we have in God, the the citizenship that we have in the kingdom of God through Jesus, and he's saying, God, don't make me do this. He is in anguish. Sometimes God rescues us from suffering, and sometimes God rescues us through suffering. I wish I knew when it was this and when it was that. I wish that I could put a chart up for you guys. When God is putting you through suffering, smile because it's okay under these circumstances. It doesn't work like that. Pastor Josh has his kids say, God is good. And then they say, all the time, all the time, God is good. 
God is good when your daughter isn't getting healed. When she's turning three, it doesn't crawl. God is good. God is good when your husband has a heart attack and is taken way too soon from you. God is good. That's the stubborn hope that the early church had. And you know what? When we live with that stubborn hope and God does show up because God will show up, we can be shocked, we can be uh, uh, amazed, and we can celebrate because we know that that's who God is. So that night, we get to remember together here today, that night when Jesus was in so much anguish, that night when um, Jesus knew what was about to happen and, uh, and asked God to make it not happen. We remember that. And I, and I pray that we would remember it with that type of seriousness, that we know that God rescues through suffering. That God rescues through suffering. If the elders would come forward, we're going to prepare to receive communion this morning. We're going to invite you to come forward, take some bread, dip it in the uh, juice, and you can eat that right there. If you are gluten-free, the station furthest this way is gluten-free. But as you come forward, the praise team is going to be uh, playing No Longer Slaves, No Longer Slaves to Fear. And I think that's appropriate. Jesus was pretty clearly afraid that night, but he was not a slave to his fear. He didn't go running away. He had hope in the Father as he was about to face something terrible because he knew that God was good all the time. So before that happened, he was sitting with his disciples, and it says in the book of Luke that he took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. As you come forward this morning to receive communion, I pray that you would remember his sacrifice, that we were rescued through suffering, and that God is good all the time.